Hello and welcome to a very special episode five of Inside the Tour as the Lions return to South Africa, scene of the unforgettable tour of 1997 that we're tracing in this series. On this episode, we're jumping off from our journey to meet two characters right at the very heart of the story. I enjoy talking oh, with Jim. It's, it's like we've never been away. Oh, it's tremendous, tremendous to speak to you. Almost as soon as Sir Ian McGeekin was appointed head coach, he asked for Jim Telfer as his assistant. Both had played for Scotland and for the Lions. Both had coached Scotland. Very similar, very different. It was good cop, bad cop, very much so. Geach was very calm and softly spoken, and Jim was gravelly and tight on the leash, you know, because there was so much threat in, in what Jim was saying. Geach was a masterful planner. Jim was very good at actually transferring that onto the pitch, particularly in the forwards. And he had that steely manner of a headmaster. Geach and Jim's man management set a gold standard. Methods follow today in sport and business. Their coaching strategy helped a group of disparate characters take out the world champions. I mean, Ian McGeekin's one of his final speeches before I think the second test, he says, you'll see each other maybe in 20 years time from now and there'll just be a little look in each other's eyes and a nod and a knowledge that what you're about to do is going to be very special and you're going to remember it for the rest of your life. And he's right. The thing that binds them both is their passion, you know, the passion for rugby, the passion for Scotland at the time, but more so the passion for the Lions having been there, done it and now teaching others. I don't think you could get a, a better pairing. They very rarely have the chance to sit and reminisce together. But on the 25th of March 2021, for the first time in as long as either could remember, Sir Ian McGeekin and Jim Telfer talked about that Lions experience. And they talked, and they talked. It was a great environment to be coaching oh, yeah. and um, which is why when I said to Frank Cotton about Frank Cotton said who do you want as forward coach I said Jim before he'd finished the sentence because because I knew if the players were going to have something that was going to make a difference it would be Jim so I've always admired Ian's thinking ability he thinks outside the box and when he was chosen as the Lions coach in 97 having been with 89 and 93 he asked me to be his forward coach. I had coached for four years because I was working as a full-time official with the, with the union, the Scottish Rugby Union. And so it was a daunting ta task for me. It was, I think, the first time that I had coached in a group where I had a set job, and that was my job, to coach the forwards. And all the peripheral things were dealt with by other people. And that was one of the great strengths of the Lions party in... 97 was get the right kind of players, but also we had a, a large enough management for everybody to have a, a niche job and to be able to do that niche job as they thought fit. And that was one thing about Ian when we coached. He, I think, would have liked to have interfered with the forwards sometime, but he, he never <laughs> had the audacity to, try to do it. But he used to, he liked to get on with it. The great thing about 97 was that the pieces were there, you know, and I, I've always said, you know, you might be at one end of the field with the forwards and I'd be at the other end with the backs. But I knew exactly all the messages 
were the same. All, all right, they're delivered slightly differently, or there's certain different things that have to be done by players. But ultimately, what we were looking at, the game we wanted to play, we both had the same game in our heads. I mean, one of the great lessons I learned was that selection is key to success. And I agree with you with the three-man committee that chose the team, although we had advisors, and uh, that was a big change. I mean, nowadays, I think that the, the coaches are, and the, for the Lions are a great array of talent to pick from. But even in 97, I mean, to be able to choose players who would fit into the way you wanted to play the game, I think was... You know, the first time that I had been in that sort of advantageous position, but he had, it was a luxury, you know, when uh, to have players who weren't good enough to get the test team, but could have been in the test team in any other tour. And so, but selection is the key, and you have to, I mean, reporters and pundits and all sort of people can pick teams, but uh, the the ultimate choice comes out of the coach and his coaching team. One thing that struck me, you wouldn't notice it so much, Ian, but when we arrived in Johannesburg and we had the first press conference, history is a big thing in South African rugby, as you know, and there were world champions expected to take us apart. I remember the first press conference and at the top table was Fran Cotton, a massive man. And on his right was you, and I was certainly on the left, but out the way a wee bit. The reporter saw in front of them two lions who had been with the 1974 Invincibles, if you like. And yourself and Brian had such a reputation in South Africa that they listened and were listening to every word you said. And I thought psychologically, even the first press conference when we touched down in South Africa early in the morning, there was a gain, if you like, for the Lions. There was a psychological win there because of the, the men who were actually leading the Lions, yourself and Fran. And although I don't suppose you can measure it, I think it went a long way to, well, obviously convincing the Lions players themselves who were being looked after, coached, if you like, for yourself, and managed by Frank, who had done it before. And it's a great thing to, to look at somebody across a room and, and say, well, you, we, you've done it before. I've been in South Africa before with the Lions, but I've not been so successful. But that was one telling moment very early in the tour. And that moment when we met, when we met the press for the first time, they weren't convinced the Lions were going to win. The South African press are difficult to convince that way. But I thought we made a, a tremendous uh, point. We proved a point at the first the first press conference. But, uh, well, obviously, Farmer was in charge and you were doing most of the speaking. But it had a profound effect on me. I, rem I remember it because the sports minister was there. And when we got off the plane, somebody came up to Fran and me and said he wanted to see us separately. Mm -hmm. And we got in a room with him and he went through all four test matches in 1974. <laughs> and he was with Nelson Mandela at the time on Robin Island. And he said they listened to the radio with the, the guards put the radios on the windowsills. And 
the, the minutiae of what he remembered about the test matches. And he said, never underestimate the impact of what you did in 1974. And he, he shook our hand and he said, now we have a press conference to go to. It had an impact on me. And I think it obviously had an impact on the, the chap in the prison. Yeah. <laughs> it was now running, at that time, it was running the sport in South Africa. Yeah. I would still say if the closest some of that rugby in 97 got to uh, you've got a perfect game, I've got a perfect game in your head of what you would like to see or be associated with. And some of that rugby in 97 was close to, you know, the game that I would always want to be associated with or seen just watching and enjoying because, and I think the great satisfaction was seeing the players evolve and the players change, that the front five forwards were far more involved in the game than just winning ball, their ball carrying, you know, which meant that the big physicality approach of South Africa was actually being challenged because we'd more ball carriers and, and we could uh, we could play in different areas, but we'd got forwards who were genuine ball carriers and great feedback from them, I think, as well. It's it's the first time I really felt... No, well, no, that's not... Because, you know, 89-90 with, with the Scotland team as well, that the feedback you got from the players was really honest mm -hmm. and they would put something... If you're trying to do something, that you'd get a little thing look, if we do this this way, it might achieve it better. And you had those sorts of conversations with the players, you know, again, so stimulating. And then when, you know, Jim and I, we, when we'd talk and just, we got every training session videoed with the fellas that were there. So we could actually look at everything we were doing in a way that we could move things on on a daily basis and, and look at different players, which, you know, I'd never been able to do. And I think it was the first real hint of what professionalism could bring to the game. If, you know, those opportunities were, were there. And I enjoyed with Andy Keese to everybody else got a suntan in South Africa. He went white because he, goodness knows how many hours he did in his bedroom. Mm. But some of the stuff he came up with, and he was a coach, and he coached mm. in South Africa at Natal. So we'd got this feedback from him as well about what he was looking at or what the players or what he would pick out from some of the sessions. So again, we're having conversations that, you know, are just putting ideas and thoughts into the mix to, to really get the real clarity of where the rugby needed to be and where the players by position and unit, what they needed to be and what they needed to be able to deliver. In the end, I felt like it was a privilege to be part of that group because it changed my thinking in, in the way we could approach players and the game itself. Some of the work of the front five, you know, that, that Jim put in, and then you see it reflected in the first test, you know, that we were going to get pushed off the park. And I still look at it and think the scrum that Matt Dawson scored his try off was an unbelievable scrum. Technically, you couldn't have seen anything better. Now, that's what people said we couldn't do. We didn't expect to boss South Africa, and I had that philosophy, and we talked about it, was... What we had to do was take their strength away so that we were playing to our strengths. 
and we, we weren't going to be dominated and play the game that made it easy for them. And that some of that rugby in that first test are the ball carriers. But that's I still remember that scrum that Mark, Mark Dawson scored his trial. Technically, you look at it, it had a right shoulder up, which, you know, was perfect for him. And he did what he did at Northampton every other week, you know. And that was produced because you do group of four was in the front row who knew that if they were scrummaging six inches higher, they were going to be in trouble. And they produced a scrum like that. And and we were always under pressure, but we actually had parity and a bit more. Uh, yeah, so you yeah. look at, you know, all those that, those front five, but the back row, you know. And the other example I get in the second test was sometimes you have players who just will adapt. We wanted them, you know, to, to react and adapt to what was there. I still make a joke with Jerry Guscott when I see him that I think he was only ever in five rocks in his career. But the ball we turned over for the drop goal that he might started with him. He turned the rock over. And it was Keith Wood who we got in at scrum half ahead of Matt Dawson who kicked the ball down and chased it to make the line out that actually led to the drop goal. So you'd got players who responded and reacting to what was needed, you know, and could see it. Under all the pressure we'd been under in that second test, you look at some things where just their approach held together. I mean, you must remember that Paul Wallace wasn't in a, even in the squad when it was chosen. Peter Closey filled the test. Tom Smith went with, a, I think he played twice for Scotland, <laughs> yeah. before he went to the Lions. I have a strange philosophy about props. I like my props to be rugby players first and scrummagers second. I think you can change a player into be a scrummager, but you can't play change an out-and-out scrummager into a rugby player. So when we made the selection for the tour, the, the number one props at that time that were Jason Leonard and Roundtree and Tom and Paul Wallace were second choice. But the kind of game we wanted to play meant that the forwards had to be able to move the ball and play. And we had have to have confidence in, in them being able to transfer the ball, use the ball to play the game we wanted to play. And we also, we have, the week before, when we picked the score, the, the front five, Jerry Davidson was uh, also an athletic bloke who came into the team with Martin. And so that you had three rugby playing, new players, if you like, in, the, in these positions. Keith Woods was already a well-established player, but Tom, Paul and Jerry weren't supposed to be in the test team, but they came through and they deserved their place. One of the reasons we, we chose Tom and, and Paul was because they were shorter than the opposite numbers in the, in the Springbok side. And so we, the props could get underneath. All we were looking for was parity in the scrums. And that scrum that Ian talks about, it's on the right-hand side, 25 metres, 22 metres out or something, and there's a blind side. I remember the scrum well because it was the always the match one in trial, although Alan Tate scored another one later. I think that the front five deserve tremendous credit for developing throughout the tour. I mean, Doddy Weir, unfortunately, was injured in the fourth game, I think it was, the fourth game. So he, unfortunately, didn't get his chance to play in the test team. Simon Shaw was there as well. So the, the front five 
don't get all that much credit, but they were chosen specifically for a job to match the Springboks in the scrum and, and the nitty-gritty of, of the tight areas, but to have the extra dimension further out, which was, you know, the if you like, the, the whole essence of how we were trying to play the game. And so I would agree with Ian. And if I could take one player, probably, I would take Tom Smith as the player who exceeded all expectations to get into the test team and hold his own. I mean, I remember Tom as a youngster at Aberdeen University and he was playing for Dundee High School. He went to runner school. There were discussions at that time, was he big enough for props so they tried to make him a hooker? He was a bit like Ian McLaughlin. There were always questions of whether he was big enough to be an international player at loosehead prop. And so that he, well, he obviously came through and played umpteen times for Scotland, went for Lions tours in Scotland. But uh, he, first and foremost, he was a rugby player. He played a lot at number eight as well as a schoolboy. And so what we're talking about, uh, the first and second test matches, I mean, we uh, we never were going to beat them in the scrums as long as we held our own. That was enough for us. And the front five, I mean, the, the back three were fine as well you know, the, in the, the back row. But the front five was really the key to success. Al, Jim, yes. can I just have two minutes? <laughs> There's yes. a lorry just coming up by the, into the no gate to drop some fences off. Now, you you and, deal with that, Gates, and we'll be right back here with you. Yeah, no, that's fine. Just yeah. get be three or four minutes, I think, to get no, this no, lorry no, sorted okay. out. No problem. Just in a bit. <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Right, Geach, are, are you um, are you sorted on your fence posts? I think so. Judy's in charge now, so we'll be all right. <laughs> oh, it's okay, Judy. Geach, you're on time and a half now. Okay, you're listening to Inside the Tour, and we're privileged to be eavesdropping on a remarkable conversation between rugby legends Sir Ian McGeechan and Jim Telfer. As the coaching team behind the Lions of 1997, they set the strategy, created the team ethic, universally praised, and crucially, delivered speeches which have gone down in sporting folklore. Our backgrounds are not dissimilar. I mean, my father was an engineer, working class. I was a secondary modern school pupil. I shouldn't have been playing rugby union at all, but, but I had some really good people that, that gave me good advice. A father that gave me a lot, tremendous amount and never saw me play for Scotland, which is my one regret remains that uh, my mother did, but my father never, and he was a, a good Glaswegian. And and it's sometimes thinking of though you get there because of people and because of what they will say or what they do. And that's always been key to me. And sometimes you go away and say, well, where do we think we are within the week? And what have we said? What have we done? What we're we trying to do? And I just used to go say, go for a walk, try and get all that just cleared in my head. And then maybe have, well, on that tour, four or five just key words, key things to talk around, to try and just get the right message over. And um, 
we obviously both, I think, thought a lot about that as well, of getting the players with a re- realism, but also confidence not to be afraid to play and not to be afraid to do things that ultimately could well be the difference in winning a test match. I used to enjoy them because I'd sometimes go have a coffee or walk somewhere. I'd just, you know, literally have three quarters of an hour just, just wandering around the waterfront at Durban or just around the back streets of Cape Town, I remember as well. So really, you, you try and just say what you think is they're right in assessing, I think, where we are as a group of people. I must admit, I did prepare for that time when I spoke about Everest and so on, and I've never used the speech again. People have said to me, by the way, I use your Everest speech, but we still got beat. And I said, well, <laughs> you shouldn't. You should be original and do your things. But I'm not a naturally outgoing person. I liked to captain teams when I was young, but I wasn't, I wasn't very confident in speaking. Uh, but becoming a teacher, you have to express yourself. And I always think teaching, you're a bit of an actor. And so as I developed my team talking, if you like, I tried to vary my speech. Uh, I mean, some of the words weren't very clever. They were kind of colourful sometimes. But I tried to vary the tone of my voice, sometimes quiet, sometimes louder. And... For that speech in Cape Town for the first test, I had bullet points up on the on the board. I used those bullet points to get through to the players. I've never used the word Everest before in a speech and never since. So I don't know where that actually came from, unless it was from the very fact that I realised that had, having been aligned as a player and as a coach, and New Zealand had played and lost in four test matches. Didn't play in all of them, but I lost in all four. In South Africa, I lost three. And as a coach, I'd lost in, in New Zealand four. But I realised to win a test match in South Africa, or New Zealand in particular, was the pinnacle. And that's, I think, where the average came from. You have to take into account also that when I went on the tour with Ian, I hadn't coached for three years. Before that, even I was a club coach for a while because I re- I'd retired from coaching after the 1991 World Cup. So I had to get the, the confidence of the players and I worked very hard at working with players like Lawrence Delario, Martin Johnson, Keith Woods and, and so on to yeah. get their confidence, to get them to do the things that I wanted them to do and I must admit, the Jason Leonard as well, they were tremendous on that tour. And we agreed early on that we had to work together, that we had to decide how we wanted to play the game, how we wanted to play a forward play. And once we'd chosen how to do it, it was 100%. And I discussed with them about mauling and rucking and so on. And you can't change a mauling team and a rucking team in two or three weeks, but... They were prepared to play the way I wanted them to play. But yeah. the forwards, I, I admire them. They actually took on board what I wanted to do. And that came out in the speech. And I was reading somewhere, Martin Johnson said the players were, after I spoke to them, and it was before lunch on that test match, they sat there for a few minutes maybe contemplating what I'd said. Uh, I think Ian underestimates his ability to give keen talks because he gives, he gives some crackers, you know. 
I'm not so sure. He just walks along the uh, along the street, <laughs> and, and I think he must have some preparation about how he does it because it, he's had some cracking speeches at team talks, and uh, although the Everest one gets mentioned a lot, one of the things I used to use Ian was what the press said about us the week yeah. before. South African press, well, they didn't think we had a chance. They said we were useless. The scrums were poor. And I used the word they didn't respect us. They, they tend to be a little bit confident in their own ability. Sometimes the Springbok, justifiably so something, the World World Champions. So I used the comments in the press in that Everest speech and turned it back on them. But I don't think the players probably had heard before such a... a a speech where they were to search into their souls and ask certain questions and not get up from their chair until the questions were answered in their own heads. I, I, I agree, Jim. I think teaching certainly helped me and actually gave me confidence to talk. You know, like you, I was captain of teams, but I was actually happier speaking when I was captain on the field, just looking at what was happening and rather than beforehand. And that's the bit I enjoyed most. But the teaching and that confidence that it gives you, because your preparation in teaching, and I was at a PE college, Carnegie, the preparation and the work I did to qualify was at a different level to what I'd ever done before. And it always came down. Every lecturer said preparation, 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 preparation. If you do that, you'll never get caught out with a class of children. But they did say, if you want to get caught out, stand in front of a class of children unprepared. And those sort of messages, I was only 18, 19 at the time, but I did take those on board, you know, that I would have the right kit on, I'd look the right part, and you would then have everything you knew in your mind about what you wanted to do and, and picture it in a way. I think that in the early days of coaching in Scotland, school teachers were frowned upon by the people from industry, players, that they were soft. But I, I mean, I agree with the preparation. And we both prepared well for our coaching sessions. Yeah. And we used to be frowned upon. I used yeah. to have a science book because I was a science teacher. I used to pinch one from the lab and put my notes. Every session I coached, I have notes on. I've got rid of them, some of them now, but way back to the early 70s. And I could look back and see what I did and I had shorthand for this but I know you were meticulous in your preparation obviously for PE but also for your sessions and as a science teacher I used to make sure that I had so much work prepared that uh, I would never run out of stuff and I remember when I started teaching I was 24 and I thought I prepared every night and I, you know I did all the work I thought after two years you know I'll be an expert I'm not going to do any preparation but you don't realise the teaching moves on, the subject moves on, and you move on. So you're constantly making prep, what you think is better preparation. And I think this carried on to our preparation in, for international teams and so on. By the way, I didn't listen to Jim's speech until the video came out. <laughs> no, you weren't there. <laughs> but it, it's, that, you know, it's that thing about looking at, into yourself. I think, um, you know, I wasn't the biggest rugby player either, but I always felt I had to try and make a point physically early on in a game to make sure defensively I didn't want big players coming looking for me. 
because they thought I wouldn't tackle or I was smaller there. So in the first 10, 15 minutes of a game, if I had to make a tackle, I tried to do it with such intent that I hurt somebody legally, but I was happy to get my shoulder in somebody's ribs and keep it going. Uh, And I think when Jim talked about that depth and that feeling that you must come to terms with yourself about what you're prepared to put on a rugby field to win and the impact it has on others, I think that was the other great thing I think I learned from that tour was by somebody doing something, it allowed somebody else to do it. Off the field and on it as well, you know, with Fran as as Jim... You know, I mentioned earlier as a management group, just what we did and how we did it. What one thing we we agreed was we'd do all our rugby work and have it finished by Thursday. So we didn't train on a Friday. We gave the players 48 hours before the test match when everything was done. But what we did do is we went out for a cream tea, afternoon tea. And in Cape Town we went to the the, the gardens and we'd got it all set up. Dave McLean, who was the fitness man, I don't think necessarily agreed with it. He's talking about fit. But to be fair to Dave, he ahead of us had booked everything or found a place and booked everything. So we'd go for a walk together as the test group and then we'd we'd have cream scones and cup of tea. But all we were doing was talking. And then we'd have the team meeting on Friday evening. But we didn't train on a Friday. But then we had a bigger session on the Saturday ahead of the game. We went to a school pitch gym, didn't we, at Newlands? And there were people trying to bring cars in and park on this pitch. And we're we're doing a session on it. So we actually did more ahead of the test match on that afternoon where we'd have a really good 30 minutes. And then we were back in the hotel and then to the... And the same in Durban, we went to a zoo and had a cream tea. And then in Johannesburg, we went into a park. But always felt a bit more dangerous going in a park in Johannesburg. But it it was those things that, you know, I think all all helped the continuity of, of players just really understanding each other. And it comes back to Jim's words about you've got to look hard at yourself first before you ask somebody else to do something. And that, I think, is the essence very much of what we both believe. Could I just make a point about what Ian... Ian's speeches often went into things about family, which I agree with. He was very good at that, using families and school teachers and people who had helped him. He talked to the players about the uh, who had got them to the position they are or they were. But the one thing I remember about Ian was, I think it must have been before the second test, when he said, if you meet somebody in 30 years in a street and you've been on the Lions tour and you meet each other walking towards each other, you just need to nod and you'll remember that moment when you were together on the tour. That, that's the one thing I can remember about Ian's speech. And it's absolutely true. If you meet a player that has been on the Lions tour in 97 or a, a member of the management, you have a, a connection that will last until we die because that fleeting 10 weeks, we made history. And Ian used to say it was a 10-week phenomenon. Shorter now, I think it's about a fortnight. But uh, <laughs> he used to say it's a 10-week phenomenon. And you, you're judged on that 10-week 10 10-week 10 preparation and, and games. You don't ever play again the same players, the same management. So it's unique. 
but I remember him saying that. He'll remember it. I think it was Durban, the second yeah. test, where you said, if you meet someone in this room coming towards you, all you need to do is you can nod and you can understand in that moment. Well, we went on to win the second test. And so that's what I can remember, particularly about Ian. But he was very good at getting into the player about who had made sacrifices for the player. And the player was really the lucky person, the, the person who was there to bring out all the good things that had been put into him from his family, from his teachers, from the club mates and so on. Uh, that was Ian's strength often. We had so great social events too, you know, yeah. and they were there. I mean, you can remember the rugby and, and, and so on, but some of the, the, the social events we had after the games were brilliant, brilliant, you know, where the Lions supporters were in the same pub as us, the same bar, and we had a big meal going on, and they were just leaning over the banisters and stuff like that and joking to the players. And it was a, an almost unique experience that doesn't happen <laughs> now in rugby, I would have thought. I don't know what Ian thinks of that, but off-the-field stuff was brilliant. There wasn't enough, there wasn't a lot of drinking, there wasn't a lot of people slouching away and doing things, I don't think. They were all professional. But when we had a good time, we had a good time. And uh, remember when we used to be perched away miles from the game, <laughs> uh, yes. in amongst the South African crowds. <laughs> you know, why they did that to us, especially in the second test match in Durban, we were miles, well, not miles, but yards from the scene. Well, there was comments made about this and that. And so, <laughs> sitting beside Springbok supporters, you know, <laughs> Afrikaners who are speaking a different language to you, it's not the the best way to make friends, I don't think. And and but to think the South African board would do that to us was unbelievable. Yeah. But coaches, you didn't have coach boxes, did you, or anything <laughs> like that? We we sat out there. It's the first time I think I physically bossed Jim at the end of, because I was worried about whether we'd get out in one piece with the conversations with the Afrikaners behind us. Jim having a real go at them at the end. And that was just a woman. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, it was, um, it was certainly interesting, put it oh, that way. Yeah. But I think going back to what Jim said about impact and the, the, the use of impact with the team, the, the, the training, because I think, again, in retrospect, there'd been a tough season for a lot of the players. And in fact, Leicester had played a cup final, I think, on the Saturday before the Monday when we all got together at Weybridge. And one of the things we'd said, we wanted to get over the principles of support that we had a series of activities which weren't strictly rugby, which actually could only be achieved if you were in teams of three. And we talked about teams of three all the time. So nobody was going to win a rugby match on his own or was good enough to. So they put together challenges which required support and communication and understanding and almost an understanding of a role, whether you're at the end of a rope with somebody hanging up in a tree or whether you're on a canoe with somebody paddling up a weir on the Thames, whatever it was. And I think they impact did that really well. Jim and and I yeah. know when we did the rugby and the sessions that we went to London Irish to do the rugby yeah. the conversations we could have related to some of the other activities which again I think put a variety in front of the players to think differently or, or to yeah. appreciate things 
differently. I think the other thing was the yellow cards. We put yeah. on cards what were our priorities as a group of people. Yeah, yeah. And, had, and you could refer them. to them. Yeah. You know, you could personal. put them your pocket and refer to them and remind yeah. you the impact was a tremendous thing. And uh, the, I got to know people that I would never normally get to know. Jerry Guskett, for example, who would be back and miles away from me. I got to know him very well. The young Underwood, uh, what's his first name again? Tony. Tony, Tony. I remember on the Friday night, we went to the pub and, and Tony played at Newcastle at that time. And we, we got on like a house on fire. A young winger from England and a, an old gnarled Scotsman blethered away in the bar just before we went away on tour. So the, the week before we went, with the impact sessions in the morning and the rugby sessions in the afternoon, were tremendous. And they, they helped to build the team. And I, I suppose I've always been a week before. When you played, you, you met a week before. It was mainly rugby activities you did it. We, I went to Folkestone, I went to Bournemouth, and I was involved as a player. And uh, there were good weeks. Because I think that people should realise that when when you start a tour, everybody, all management, whatever the number and the players are, we'll say 60 people, their sole purpose in life is to go on tour to be successful. Everybody has that aim and ambition. And the players now will be the same as they were then. They, they put everything in to try and make a success of it. That's not always successful. So the first week in London were very useful in one for you getting your philosophy across and how we wanted to play the game. Teams within teams was one yes. of your favourite things you said uh, yeah. and teams within teams and that's absolutely true, still true now that uh, we had uh, the players got to know each other, they liked each other and one of the great things I found about the players that the, you put the philosophy forward how we wanted to play the game. Going to the pub in Weybridge on the Friday night to tie everything up actually again reflected that, you know, that side of it was important, that there's a lot of minutes in the week where you're not involved with the rugby ball and actually being able to do things together and still learn things almost just by being in relationships and conversations just start to come out of you back to... Naturally, you know, people spoke naturally. Our relationship is so natural. I didn't interfere with how we wanted to play the game. I mean, I might have had my opinions. I did my job, I stayed doing my job, and Ian was the boss and I was the assistant, and that's the way it was. So I always liked speaking to Ian. Uh, it's Jim, it's, it's, more, it's a collective intelligence, I think. I always think that when, when you've got two or more head or minds that are thinking the same way but left field as well you actually get to different conclusions that yeah. keep keep you fresh or keep you yeah. moving on and i think that's what we did it was a great environment to be coaching oh, yeah. and um uh, we could go over all ground again but the 97 lines was absolutely out of this world for me brilliant great times especially oh, yeah, great times yeah. Well, what a privilege that was. We didn't leave much on the cutting room floor, but rest assured, key sections that you didn't hear there, including their take on the vital test matches, will appear later in the series. 
Let us know your thoughts on what you've heard from Geech and Jim at Inside Tour Pod. And don't forget to download the series so far as we tell the story of the Lions in South Africa, 1997. With thanks to producer Mark Sharman and executive editor Jonathan Overend, this is a 9419 production for Audie.